I don't know how much context you've got for who I am or why I'm here. I don't know whether I'm a new face to you or whether you've somehow heard of me or seen me somewhere at New Day or anything like that. I really don't know. Um, so I'm going to just shoot a bit of our story as a family or a bit of my story, a bit of why I'm here, I suppose. And then a little bit of um, kind of uh, the heart would be that I'm already assuming that you believe that the scriptures encourage us to partner with the poor, to serve in areas of injustice. I'm kind of thinking you're already somewhat convinced of that. And we can open some of the scriptures and we can talk about that. And we can say, what does that mean? What does that look like uh, scripturally, which we'll do. But I'm kind of working on the base that you've, you've got a heart for that kind of work or you've got a heart for, uh, for seeing God move amongst uh, uh, areas of injustice. And you're trying to figure out what does that look like with your life? Um, and so when I was always, I was, that makes me sound really old, I'm not that old, I'm 36. Um, I, I was really just holding this book and I really believed it um, and I was convinced by what it said. I was also as convinced that my life didn't really look like it could rest in this book. Um, so I think I had a lot of head knowledge about the scriptures. I had a lot of um, ideas about what that could mean and what that could look like. But it's taken me a long time to actually figure out how, how to live a life uh, that, that could look like it was actually part of this book. So my wife and I, um, my wife's she's from Colombia, um, we've got two small kids and one wife. Um, we got to a stage in our, in our lives where we, where we realized, man, like even working in ministry, um, our life could just simply be nine to five, um, go to bed, wake up, go back to work, go and do our nine to five, carry on, uh, make enough money to buy a nice house, have a nice house, Bill said nice house with kids, uh, get on a few roads as a church, work for the church, Ooh, work for the church, do your thing, be released, and do what you need to do. Um, but we kind of had this growing dissatisfaction with the fact that there was a big gap between the book of Acts and the life that we were living. Um, and I guess in the last few years, I've really just tried to hold this book and, and say, if, if I really live like I believe this, what would, what would that look like? like? If I really, really um, uh, put put myself in, in the scriptures and, and then lived as I really believe that God was calling us to serve in areas of injustice and partner with the poor and, uh, and lead churches or help support churches that would really transform communities, what would that look like? So we began to pray that kind of prayer. Uh, we locked ourselves into a lot of prayer. Uh, we became very hungry, really, for the things of God, really seeking God, uh, asking God, a lot of God, asking difficult questions about myself. I stood in worship then and... Um, I think I'm one of these guys that thinks I get it, but I don't quite get it. I don't know if you feel like that sometimes. I'm here and I get it, um, but I'm not sure I get conference Christianity. I'm not sure I get it. Does that make any sense to you, right? So I get this and I get this and, I, and, and, and I, I'm following God, but there was a way of following God in our church that was such a well-worn path um, that I think we just slotted into that path. Like we went to the conferences, we knew when to raise our hands, we knew when to get excited, we knew the answer to most of the questions. We knew how to fob off people that were interested in kind of really getting to what they wanted to know about. So we knew how to be vulnerable, but not too vulnerable so that people would think we were right? We could we get it. We knew how to navigate church already, right? You've got that. And I, and I think we realised that um, you, we, we could fake this very easily. We could fake what, what we were about. And, uh, and in a sense, it would, no one would really call us out anymore because we were in leadership, no one would really want. But, but we grew really dissatisfied with that. And um, I'm convinced that uh, Jesus is for uh, the poor. I'm convinced that Jesus wants our churches to be uh, places where the broken can really come and be vulnerable. I'm convinced that our churches should be a bit more messy than they are right now. And I'm convinced that our churches and uh, the scriptures that we hold 
have got a lot more answers for some of the deep and complex and, and really gritty issues in society, um, but that's going to cost you something. It's cost me something. It's, it's, it's taken uh, a lot of time. It's taken a lot more of our energy. It's taken a lot more of our lives than we thought it would, but we're happier now than we've probably ever been. Um, in our life, so that's just what I'm going to unpack with you really, how we went from kind of being slightly dissatisfied born Christians to how we've now uh, living something that we believe looks a little bit more like the Book of Acts. You can decide, I'm not, you know, not really one to decide on what my own life looks like. But, um, so I think we start to knock ourselves in prayer and say, God, if, if, the, if the church should serve others, if the church should meet the needs of communities, what would that look like for me? What would that cost of me? Jesus stands up at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we're told, unravels the scrolls and said the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover his sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled out the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were on him and he began by saying to them, today the scriptures are fulfilled, fulfilled in your hearing. I want to ask you what you really believe about Jesus. What do you really believe about Jesus? Not, not what Sunday school taught you to believe about Jesus. Not that it was wrong. But I want to ask you today as you see it, what do you really believe about Jesus? Is it deep in your heart? Do you have a deep conviction in your heart? I had to have a deep conviction in my heart that Jesus is Lord. I had to really believe that Jesus is God. Because if Jesus is God, if Jesus is Lord, then everything else is, is narrative. Everything else the society tells me can be helpful, can not be helpful. But it will all be viewed by that one truth. Can I trust what's written in this book? Was a question I asked myself. And there's a book I'd advise you if you're worried, like, is this genuinely what was handed down? Is this genuinely the words of this scripture is true? And if you believe they're true, you then still have to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And who do I actually believe he is? And then, and then uh, like friends of mine, they would be like, you know, you almost want to prove that you're really hardcore. You know, you really believe that Jesus is Lord. And I always recall a friend of mine years ago said to me, if, if you were arrested tomorrow for being a Christian, would they find enough evidence to throw you in prison? So if they looked at my life, just if you literally just arrested me tomorrow and said, it's legal for you to be a Christian. Is there any evidence in my life of the fact that I follow Jesus? Can my life only make sense through this lens of the fact that, that I follow Jesus? And, and, and I'm convinced that Jesus is Lord. And I think that was where I was growing more and more dissatisfied, that there was a growing gap between what I said I believe and what my actual life displayed. I was, I was far too happy to be comfortable. I was far too happy for material. Uh, I was far too happy for a safe life. I think at that stage it was kind of, if I can just keep things safe, if I can contain things, if we can enjoy ourselves with a two-week holiday each year and the kids are happy and the wife is happy, then I should be happy, right? This should be good and we're all okay. But it was this growing need in me for an adventure in God. It was a growing need in me for, for um, what I believe God would do with our lives. So that's a really long introduction and a really long way of telling you that at that time when we started to pray, I was offered an opportunity to go to South Africa for the first time. So I live in Cape Town right now. Um, I have done for the last four years. Um, I know if any of you have heard this story before, it's really a nice reminder if you have and a new one if you haven't. Um, but I was offered the opportunity to go. I went, I was working for the church, I was trying to be a youth worker, and um, I, I went to see friends who'd started a project on a township in Cape Town. Um, if you've seen Reggie Yates, Extreme South Africa, he goes to Kailicha Township, which is about 15 minutes away from where we work. If you've seen Ross Kent on Gangs, he's gone into Baltimore Prison, which is about two minutes from where my little girl goes to nursery. Um, so that's the world we're in. We're, we're really um, trying to unpack what the gospel looks like in a very broken um, part of society. It's broken for a number of historical reasons that are to do with politics, that are to do with race, that are to do 
um, with society and bro brokenness and an outwork of brokenness. And, um, and I remember when I first saw um, poverty firsthand, I was younger than that, but certainly when I went this time, I was, I was old enough to just sit and take this in, that my life was very different to the life I was being exposed to in that area. And the young people I worked with had a whole different set, a whole different grid for what was going on uh, in this area. And um, we were offered the opportunity, our friends were starting to work with young people after school, they were starting to provide an education centre and work with them and, and, uh, and achieve the really good results uh, in a sense that they were really making a difference in these young people's lives. 50% of young people in South Africa won't graduate from normal um, school, like high school. They won't graduate secondary school. <coughs> so they won't get to the point where they sit their final exams in secondary school. But those that start in primary school to those that finish their exams in South Africa, a true statistic is only 33% of the kids that start primary school will sit their final exams. I'm sorry, I'm splitting this half. I'll stand back a step. Right? Um, uh, to, to make it there. So we can clearly see that we've got we've got justice problems either side of that, right? You've got justice problems for those who never complete high school, and then you've got justice problems for those who complete but can't find work. So we've got youth unemployment crisis at the same time. So I found myself working and, and, and talking to these young people and hearing their stories. Many of the young men are asked to join gangs from a very young age in that area. There's a huge amount of gang culture that goes on in the Cape Flats. Um, air, whole areas are literally felt to be controlled by gangs. Um, and men, there's a large scale abuse amongst young people and every, every kind of abuse you can imagine. You start to sit there and you think, I've got no idea how that has any, any bearing between me, these scriptures that I follow, the faith that I proclaim, but I do have a gut level that when Jesus goes and you see many of the miracles, you read the words before it, Jesus moved with compassion. Then Jesus moved with compassion, Greek. Then Jesus moved with compassion, did that. I know that something happened in my heart then that was moved with compassion. Many of you are coming here because you're like, I'm moved with compassion about certain issues. I'm really touched by certain issues and I, I don't know how to make a difference. Neither did we, we didn't know how to make a difference. But our first thing I want to ask you is, who do you believe Jesus really is? Who do you believe Jesus really is? Cut out all of the, cut out all the nice answers. Cut out all the polite stuff. If, if, if you're really to give me the raw answer, What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your life right now? Um, where are you at with the stories in this book and the Savior that's described to you in this book? Where are you at? Because it provokes me to say, where am I? And to be honest, I think I've become comfortable. That's a really easy answer to stuff. I think I've become quite comfortable. It hadn't really affected my day-to-day -day life as much as it actually looked. And I was in leadership. I was in leadership. And I realized, there's a growing gap between my life and this book. And um, we were offered the opportunity to, to um, start work on building a centre for young people so they could go, they could train, they could uh, be resourced, they could be able to do it. It cost £40,000, um, was the cost. So I thought, you know what? I probably took the default and we all said, we can help here. We've got money, right? We can at least raise money. I don't have much money, but we can raise money in the UK. I was like, we can help here. We can make a difference here. So, so my blanket sort of first point of response was, we should at least do something. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's developed over time in terms of the kind of response I would have now is perhaps a little different, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that initial response of saying, I'm moved with compassion, can I do something to help? Can I make a difference here? Can I contribute? So I remember coming home and praying, God, would you show me, would you show us the rich people that we're going to meet who's going to put up some money towards this program, you know? Then we'll, we'll do a we'll do a cake plate or whatever, we'll raise a few quid and we'll support it, we'll do a a nice video, we'll do a presentation in church and we'll raise some more money. Mm -hmm. I had an opportunity to go to a conference, I was leading some youth work at a conference, I was like, maybe we'll even raise a thousand pounds, like one and a half thousand pounds. This will be a great start. 
Bushir or video, we'll put it on Facebook, we'll be good. We'll be okay. This is a good thing we should do with our faith. And I remember praying about it, and God just said to me, Steve, your bank account first. Like, if you're going to ask other people to give, then your bank account first. And, I, and the next learning I want to give you is if you're serious about injustice, then you first. You first. If not, we're just moaning, right? If not, we are just moaning. And you know those kind of people that say the church should do everything, should do this, should do that, should do that, and nobody else is doing anything that's good enough. Well, what are they actually doing? Not much. They moan. They are moaning. Modeling is better than moaning. Okay? So model something first. For good, for bad, whether it goes wrong, whether it goes right, modeling will always be better than money. What the, that biggest, my biggest contention was people don't take it seriously. People don't take Jesus seriously. People don't take the scriptures seriously. So where I needed to do was model. I didn't need to shout about it. I didn't need to moan at anybody else for not doing it. I need to ask myself, am I leading first? So I'd ask you in areas that you're passionate about, are you prepared to lead first? Are you going to, to, to step out and, and, and do, and do something, are you going to step out and advocate for something that you're going to move? And that was what God was calling me out on, your bank account first. So here's the problem, my wife and I have moved all of our savings from the previous seven years into one bank account, because there was a good interest rate deal, and I studied business days, you know, you make good money, you can do that, and that's fine, and you save up for a house, and that's what we should be doing. We had a baby, and, and uh, you know, you've got to be responsible sis, right? You grew very rapid. So what, I was actually, what God was actually saying to me is, are you prepared to lay that dream down? And chase something different, or is that the dream? Is the dream of safety and security with three dead hours? I took the book again and I said, Jesus, I was to live like the book of Acts. I didn't really answer that. Um, what am I going to do? Went home and explained to my wife, this is what I think God's doing. And I'm not here to tell my story, but to cut a long story short, um, two months later I was invited to that conference. I said, I was leaving the youth work there, we were in the main room, a bit like this, there was a dual conference thing going on. And um, so we were raising money for this. We thought we'd raise about a grand and a half for this project. So we shot a little video on our mobile phone of me standing in said township. We're going to hopefully build this. Would you give? Would you pray? You know, this, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and then I was asked to go and speak in the main venue when we had Oxford, 6,000 people there. And um, I said, Would you preach on where you preached last night? I said, Well, what I preached last night was James, from the book of James. It says, Faith without works is dead. And I believe that one of the reasons young people don't take seriously the church of God in England at the moment is because it looks like it's dead. Like, it doesn't do what it says it should do. So they can easily accuse us of being hypocrites, right? So the whole issue for me was most young people say, ah, the church is hypocrite, they don't know what they say they're going to do. And, uh, and the hard thing was I had to acknowledge that that was by and large true of my experience of church. So that was, I was kind of apologising to the young people and saying, I'm sorry that you've inherited the church. And people can easily say we're hypocrites because we don't say we do. So I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not just telling you to serve the poor. Me and my wife are giving out our, our, our savings because we believe God has called us to do it, blah, blah, blah. And this lady um, comes up and she just puts a 20 pound note on my feet on the stage. So, okay, that's great. We'll put that towards it. No, that, no problem. It's a bit weird when you're preaching, to be perfectly honest with you. And then you're like, oh, I'm kind of stuck now. There's a lot of people listening to me. I've either got to acknowledge you and have a conversation or I've got to keep preaching. So I decided to just keep going. You might just keep rolling, but you're going to put it in. And then more and more people start coming and putting money on my feet. And so there's money piling up on my feet, and I'm trying to preach over top of I'm making really inappropriate jokes, like, for me, and this is, uh, well, I don't really know what's happening. And then gradually, there's, there's more and more money coming in um, for the swap, for the project that we're doing. So this is great. So then I had to get off the stage and go and preach somewhere else, which also a bit weird. Um, people trying to talk to you, people wanting to pray for them. People thinking, I'm just a normal guy. I don't, I don't really know what's going on, to be honest with you, but this is cool. Um, but I've got no clue what's happening. 
and I went to preach somewhere else and then at lunch time they said, you've got no idea what happened this morning, did you? I said, no, 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 no clue. I know we raised a bit of money for the project and that's great. He said, no, 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 you raised 30,400 pounds. That's been put in your feet this morning. And he gave me grand, like, 30,400 pounds. So they said, there's a businessman sitting over there, he'd like to give you 5,000 pounds for his business if you want to sit sweet tomorrow. I'm not really sure how that conversation goes. Do you want to prep me on that? Because I've never asked anyone or been given that amount of money before. How does that work? So by the end of that lunchtime, we had 35,400 pounds. So I called up my friends in South Africa. I said, you're never going to believe what's happening this morning. They said, wow, just yesterday it was prophesied that God's going to raise every penny. I said, now we may be in the book of Acts. This is the, maybe we're here, right? Maybe we're, 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 we're getting close to what we want to see done for these young people. And I realized this, that I don't know necessarily why. I'm not saying God is biased towards injustice or biased towards... Well, I think God loves everybody equally. But God's heart is firmly for justice. You must understand that. Lots of you are like, what's the calling on my life? What's the, I don't know what the calling on my life is. I don't know. I still don't know what I'm doing. We are making it up as we go along. Most people on stages are making it up as they go along. I don't actually know, but I know this one thing. When our family turn our faces towards serving in injustice and serving those that it seems to us that that, that life is, is just leading to, to a kind of brokenness that may or may not be um, a result of anything they've even done, then we found God. We absolutely found God. When we turned our heart towards those young people, when, when we moved our, our focus from our own lives to somebody else's lives and figured out what it might be to give ourselves a name like somebody else, God has blessed it has absolutely blessed it and poured out upon it. So by the end of that week, the young people went on to raise 15,000 pounds. We were already 35 in the bid, so we're now at something like 50,000 pounds. We've gone beyond what we thought we were going to raise. Architects are coming on board, bricks are being donated, people are emptying their, you're that guy who's doing the hospital, aren't you? And it's like, okay, but no, 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 not me. No, it's a schools project. Okay. They're like, yeah, mate, good stuff, emptying their wallets into your hand thinking, I've got no idea what's going on, um, but this is good. This is good. This is m- much more what I hoped would happen in terms of uh, uh, the kind of life that we wanted to lead. And about two months later, um, we were uh, just, I was just praying at home, just quietly by myself, and I read Ecclesiastes 5, chapter 4, uh, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4. It says, if you make a vow before God, be good to fulfill your vow. And the smart ones amongst you would have figured out that I didn't actually give anything, because the money will be given, right? So it'd be easy for me to think, well, God's done what he said he's going to do, I don't need to give it. And if you read it, read it, it's 5 4, it says, you make a vow before God, you're going to fulfill your vow. The question is, will I fulfill the scripture that, that, that I'm reading today? So, privately, without everybody knowing, we emptied uh, our bank account of what the amount we had on that day when we committed to it, um, which was what we had. I don't think the money is important, the amount isn't particularly important. Um, God isn't interested in the amount, but He's interested in what your heart's position is towards the money that you put. Does Matthew call it? I think God's just interested in where your heart is aligned to the money that you do have. So that was an act for us as a family to say, God, we do not believe that this money will save us. We don't believe this money will make us comfortable. We don't believe this money will make us safe. We don't believe this money cannot be provided for by you. We moved on that Wednesday. And I think we're in the world in our apart from our friend in South Africa who established a project with his wife. So it's just a private deal between us and God. And on that Saturday, I got an email from somebody who'd been at the conference and said, you don't know me, I still don't know him, couldn't point him out in the room. said, I'm a businessman, I run a number of different businesses, etc., etc. God convicted me of my attitude towards money when you were speaking. And 
he told me out loud, what that young man gives away, I want you to repay back in full. So I want you to email me the amount that you were going to give away and I'm going to repay back. So I'm like, I've had a few emails about uh, business deals, about diamonds, and I've shaped in my bank account details, and we're all going to be made rich on these diamonds. Now, normally we delete those emails, right? Because we're smart. Some people might not delete them. I don't know how it happens that people do follow these things and they get ripped off. But most of us have grown up in the internet generation are like, let's delete this. This is spam. But I knew this wasn't spam. This guy had too much information. So I gave him my bank details. And by the Saturday, it was half of what we gave away on Wednesday back into our bank account. About a month later, because people in church were starting to testify, our bank account was totally restored to the exact penny of what we gave away. Why is that? I think that God wanted to prove himself. He didn't want to show that we don't. I think we might feel like, yeah, we contributed to this. He just needed to borrow our money and then he paid it back because it was his money in the first place. <laughs> I see that's what I think. It was almost like, Steve, this is my deal, not your deal. I'm going to use your family and your story because you've prayed and you've asked to be a part of this kind of story. Um, but I don't need your money. In fact, I can show you that I can move it in and I can move it out. It's nothing to me. Absolutely nothing to me. So we said, this is much more fun to buy a free version house. I think you agree, right? Like, this is the kind of life we actually believe we can do. Um, so we moved all the money and we said, we're going to move out to South Africa and we're going to see if we continue to build um, and, and build this center. Fast forward now, I, I've got a video, but I bought, um, I didn't bring a laptop. <laughs> so I, uh, I can't show you. But I don't think it's that important to show you. My context is going to be very different to your context. My context now in the Cape Flats, in some sense, won't be helpful because you feel like, oh, flip, I couldn't do something like that. It's so distant from where you are. But in many senses, we lived in Essex. We were brought up in London. Our world was very ordinary, very, very probably looked a bit like your world, right? We're not some superhuman, super special, super uh, people, just normal family. Um, so it's far easier that we don't have to show you, oh, this is really rough, this is really tough. Look at this hectic neighborhood that we're working in now. Um, you can't connect with that. So um, we moved our money and we said, we'll use that money to move out to South Africa. We'll, we'll work with our friends still, we'll keep part of the project and we'll build this building and we'll see, see what God does with us. The second week we were in South Africa, we did all the bills again. We checked what had come in, what had come out. We've been moving. We had two kids by that stage. We've been moving 6,000 miles. We've been uh, trying to make sure that we've rented out our own our place here. We would uh, pay for moving our stuff. You can imagine the amount of bills that are coming and going. People then start giving to you because you're leaving and they're just, I'm just trying to bless you with this. We just want to show you that. We had so many nuts stories of uh, one that would inspire you because you're students. Is, this just never happens, right? But we were moving out of our flat, and my wife's brother or his wife were moving into our flat. They were being blessed, they just got married. And we're like, you can house it and just pay us a minimal rent, but you don't want to make money out of you because your family's there. You know, just keep it together. And I felt God say to me, redo the kitchen. The kitchen's, you know, it was bad. It was bad. You know, I'm so bad. It's okay, it will last. I said, no, I want to eat what I bring. You do the kitchen. I said, but all that money is for South Africa. Uh, what, what do we do here? Our kitchen's going to be like a grand arm or something. You know, to redo the kitchen. I thought I'd say to me again, I want to eat what I bring. We do the kitchen. So we redid the kitchen, got back from church, fit it all out, got a deal, did a lot of the work myself, but I had to pay a lot of the bills for that kind of income. And on the weekend, we just finished it, I got a call from a student loan company. They said to me, Mr. Morris, you paid off your student loan last year? I was like, yes, I have. I'm in my 30s now, I'm happy I am. And then they said, but there seems to be a problem with your account. Now, no one was here after shooting that. You know how hard it is to even get your money in the first place and they delay it and all of this kind of stuff. And I spent money on some good holidays, right? <laughs> <laughs> nice places. I lived at home 
I'm waiting on my other day to like do like every year a shooting like walk car, that kind of deal. Right? So I enjoyed my shooting that, right? And then I was like, oh shit, what's going on? So here's the problem that you're the place that you've been working for has been paying too much money towards your shooting, so we now owe you money. We need to make a refund to your account. I said, this is our good news. <laughs> she said, I said, how much is it? Just that picture. She said, oh, it's 1,500 pounds. Wow. It's the exact amount for the kitchen. I was like, ah, oh, this is too. It's a huge load that God's involved in. You know? If you're getting money back from the shooting company, then God is involved. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so all this stuff happening. And then the second week we were in South Africa, we totaled all the pills and we realized if you had a second time over, we tried to empty our bank account and got repaid and refilled it to every single pound. Every single pound. So almost the exact pound than exactly what we've given away before. Um, so it's like a long, long storied way of trying to encourage you to hold to the scriptures, to hold to your own lives, and say if this is the kind of work that you want to be involved in, if this is what you want your life to be defined by, then hold hold to the scriptures, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added. Everything else will be added. Don't, don't start from the premise of how can we afford it? How how would it work? But you know, how would we get there? What would we do? Those are decent enough questions to ask, but don't start with this. Start with the question, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that the scriptures are true and trustworthy? And if you do, so what? So what? The scriptures say even the demons believe. Even the demons believe. But what difference will that make in your life? Is there a so what in your life? Does that make any difference to your day-to-day life whatsoever? And, um, and, and, and then we moved out, we, we, we established the center, we've established the center now, and we try and week by week, day by day, month by month. As a team, we did set up this project, friends of ours set it up. As a team now, we're trying to see and trying to live out uh, and, and, and find out, does it make any difference if you expose a community best you can to a gospel that we love people unconditionally and we'll meet them where they're at and we'll try and meet their needs? So for us, in our context, that means try and make sure that high school students finish school. Because if we're saying that like, only 30% of people finish school that um, started in primary school, is there legitimately something the church can do about it? I think that we arm too much of the politicians in this society. I think we expect that politicians are going to be some kind of saviors. You know, if only the right politicians were in power, if only they didn't vote this certain way, if only those older people in the society hadn't voted Brexit, they're messing up in our future, they're the ones who are to blame right now, we're all annoyed with them, uh, and, and, and it all comes about politics and all that comes around that. And now, I've got nothing against politics, I think Christians should be in politics, I enjoy it, I enjoy reading about it, no issue with that. But what I'm trying to say to you is, if we're constantly handing over these problems to politicians and to the government, wherever that may be, then we're not taking our ownership. The church should have something to say in our communities about issues of social justice. The church should have a voice. The church should be able to articulate something. In a community where, where 70% of kids are dropping out before the end of school, I would like to know what's the church doing. In your local community where kids are being excluded from high school, I would like to know what's the church doing. In our communities where lots of people are using food banks, because there's a, a need for, for that kind of relief in terms of their food supply. I would like to know what kind of response is the church got. If we, if we follow scriptures that tell us that we should, uh, we should have a heart and support for widows and orphans, then I want to know in our communities, what is the church doing to help single moms out there? They're the backbone of our communities to a certain extent. I'm exaggerating to make a point. But you will know, especially in our tough urban cities, 
that that single one bit of brunt of some of the most amount of, of the, that strain in bringing up kids and working justice issues. In it. If we, the church, have been commanded by the scriptures to care for our widows and orphans, then I think we've got something to say in that context. I don't think that should be left to politicians. That's too risky a strategy for me. That's way too risky than trusting that the church might have a voice and speak out. Now, that's not something new that I'm advocating to you. I'd like to argue to you that that's not something new. What I'd like to argue is that actually, if you read the scriptures, you'll see that that's been mandated. That's why I read to you um, from uh, the, the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus, sorry, I've lost my page. This is not my iPad, this is my son's iPad. It's not really my son's iPad. It used to be mine. He's seven years old, he now thinks it's his. <laughs> and now, I, you know what I mean? I can't even find anything that I want to find. Here we go. All I can find is games. Um, I think there's a biblical case for working this out, but I'm trusting that in this room you've come because you believe there's a biblical case. So we could go through the scriptures and say when when uh, when Jesus explains the parable of the Good Samaritan, he's being asked, "What do you think the law? I summarise the law. What do you say? I say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, love your neighbour as you love yourself. Well, who's who's my neighbour? He says, and Jesus uh, tells the story of the Good Samaritan. I believe that these indicators are telling us or, or pro- provoking us with the question of what kind of God. When I went to Bible college, I was told we should ask two questions. What kind of God and so what? So what? Where does that make a difference in life? One thing to say that God. So if we say that God is for for, if we say that God cares about injustice, so what? What difference does that actually make? How has that affected your life? How has that affected your local church? How has that affected what we're doing as a community of believers? Um, so in the so what? I would argue now that we, we, we're kind of needing to track in historically what has the church done. Historically, based on those scriptures, what has the church done? And um, if you're simple like me, you need a simple book like this, which says church history in plain language. Plain language. Keep it simple so I can actually understand it. Okay? Then as you read this, there's a chapter in, uh, in this book about uh, trying to explain why did the church expand so rapidly from the year AD 100 to, to AD 300. The church exponentially grew and came up against some of the world's superpowers, okay? And yet seemed to take root in society to such an extent that fast forward a few years, the, the, the superpower, if you like, in a sense, is the church. And, uh, and, and we have to look socially at that and understand how on earth did that happen? Even regardless of what you believe about Jesus, that's an incredible social event to have happened. And they argue four things. The early Christians were moved by burning conviction. That's why I ask you, what do you believe? They were moved by burning conviction. That's why they saw the church grow exponentially. The second reason is the gospel met a felt need in the hearts of people. So that means that they were able to contextualize the gospel. They were able to see where people are, um, where people's needs were, and what the gospel spoke into those needs. In the UK at the moment, amongst your ge- generation, I'm being told now, coming back, oh, Steve, things have changed now. There's now an epidemic of mental health illness and issues around the millennial generation. I don't know if that's true or not. Some of you are nodding, most of you, you know. I don't know if that's true. Do you, then I would ask you, tell me what the gospel speaks into. That's what they would do. They were very adept, those who, was, who were preaching the gospel and speaking the gospel and sharing the gospel at that time, at understanding where society was at and what the gospel speaks into in terms of that. The third was um, the practical expression of Christian love was probably amongst one of the most powerful causes of Christian success. Quite simply, if you ask me where do I start, I would say go and find somebody and tell me 
what a, a practical expression of love looks like in that context. What does it look like to start unconditionally loving people in our context? So one of the things we, we did was uh, in our local church in Essex, we said, uh, we're like the East London Essex board, I grew up in East London, um, to an extent there's a, a large amount of gang activity in the around that youth violence is an issue. We can't deny it, youth violence is an issue. So but it's really hard when a church says you only to work the gangs. Have you ever tried to walk up to a gang and try and work with them? That's, that's hard, right? It's very, very difficult to do that. So I said, well, that's going to be tough, but we actually know some of the root causes of why people go into gangs. So we can work down the path. So there's studies, actual like, uh, evidential studies that tell you that many of the people that are locked up in our prisons in the UK have got lower than average reading age. Tell me what the church has. The church has a lot of retired people. What can retired people do predominantly in the house of youth? So why don't we make it our commitment in our town that none of our kids will leave primary school with a low and average reading age? Why don't we send our retired people from church to go and make sure that every single child in our we take it personally? That's our cause. That every kid in our town will have a will leave primary school with a reading age that's on point. Then suddenly your church is working on gang issues and prison population, but it's actually working with primary school kids, with grandparents. Because society has got some of those, the fabric of that community and that family structure that's going to be able to do that. And because we take that personally, we said, no, no, we can do something about it. We can do something about it. So we just said, I think if we mentor some of the kids that are looking at the little kids out of secondary school, we can prevent them from being excluded. If also it's to do with reading ages, it's it's, we were working in primary school, stopping, we weren't doing a reading project about it. We were stopping kids that looking like they were going to get excluded from primary school. We were mentoring them. We were just going in and being trusted voices and mentoring We started in secondary school, we started working with um, young people again, we were looking like they were going to be excluded because we realised that this issue of exclusion was the church's problem, not just the company's problem. And actually, we went to our, ch- our local high school and said, How can we serve them? Went to, I know you call it secondary school now, in South Africa, too long. Went to our local secondary school and said, How can we serve them? How many churches actually do that? When was the last time our churches went to a high school teacher and said, how can we serve them? How do we go to our NHS, our local hospital, and say, how can we serve them? How can we help? How can we be part of the problem? We go to our local police and say, where are the hotspots, and how can we help? So we were running clubs in, uh, for kids called Mate Lunch. We were running clubs in holiday time. We were making sure we provide a cooked lunch for kids that were on free school meals, because in the holidays, you're not going to get a cooked meal, right? But during the school time, you're going to get free school meals. So we started to run stuff like that. None of these ideas were necessarily our own. We they still we borrowed from our own people. We took other programs, we put them in. It was fine. It doesn't need to be your idea. It doesn't need to be that you've had this great idea. You can back somebody else's idea. I'm backing somebody else's idea. I didn't launch the Sozo Foundation. I've been part of the leadership team, yes. I've got a story that's been a big part of the foundation, yes, but I didn't launch it. Didn't found it. I'm not one of the founders. I'm one of the founders' friends. But surely there's could be a role for you to become a founder's friend. Or, or, or a supporter, or someone who could passionately come alongside the issue. And then the last reason that the gospel spread during that time was because of persecution and martyrdom. People saw sacrifice and they believed. I, I, I'm convinced of this, that money is such an issue in our society that when people hear our story, it, it, it moves them. So I went to a wedding afterwards, and most of my mates are non-Christians. And um, one of my mates drives a white man, known him since I was about three years old, and, uh, and he says, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase it so you don't get finished. He says, I can't effing believe the story that he's effing done. I can't effing believe it. He says, he goes, come, say come. 
Because we're going to come to, to the tables and we're going to tell people what's happened. It's never unbelievable. And he takes me table to table at the wedding and he goes, tell them, tell them what's been happened. It's unbelievable. You can watch it on YouTube. They're talking news. And he said, and I just stand there thinking, this is a weird conversation I've ever had. My mate here in this context, who wouldn't want to hear the gospel normally, wouldn't be interested necessarily. Actually, when he sees the sacrifice I've made around money, he says, hey, You may not believe what he believes, but you're going to want to hear what happened. You're going to want to try and figure out whether you believe that for yourself. I think there's something in it. I think our society is waiting to see whether you really believe what you're saying. People just say stuff that they don't believe. I think society's waiting to see when you're prepared to sacrifice. When we move 6,000 miles with two small kids, people go, Ah, oh, fair play. We may not believe what you believe, but at least you believe. At least you're consistent with what you say. What people just don't want is the church to be full of difference. We say one thing and do another. I don't think they even mind if we make mistakes. I don't think they mind if we get things wrong. If you get things wrong, you're trying to serve the poor, you're trying to love people, you're trying to see justice in your town. You're trying to serve single moms, you're trying to help kids really well, you're trying to make sure kids don't get excluded from school, you're trying to make sure kids get fed in the holidays. I, I, I don't think you're going to offend people. This is how I think you're going to offend people. And it actually happened in, in the early days. We're going to offend people like this. Uh, there was an emperor, an Emperor Julian, um, and he says in history uh, he, that the impact of uh, the ministry amongst the pagans in the church was revealed in the observation of one of Christians' worst enemies enemies, Emperor Julian. In his day, Julian was finding it more difficult than ever he had expected to put new life into the traditional Roman religion. So he's getting annoyed with Christians because they are taking people away from traditional Roman religion. Right? So he calls Christians atheists. Right? So him the atheists. Right? This is what he says about the atheists and Christians. Atheism, i.e. the Christian faith, has been specifically advanced through the lots loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should be rendering them. If you've caught that, his biggest criticism of the Christians is that they're so flippant good at serving the poor, and they serve his people, and not just their own. Wouldn't it be beautiful if that was said about church? And you may not want to go to that church, but they serve this community well. They don't even just serve the Christians, they even serve the Christians. It's so thick and white. They're the do gooders. Oh, I don't mind that type of It's all right. Because at the moment, we're so lukewarm, we don't get criticized for anything. We're scared of being criticized. We're actually scared of our church being criticized. So we've become totally impotent to make it any difference because we're trying to people please them. We don't have a gospel that people pleases. You're going to have to upset some. There are people that don't like you, that's okay. There are people that get annoyed, but at least they're going to get annoyed because he thinks he's better than everybody else because he's serving the poor. That's okay. You can criticize for that. That's okay. Because at least we're trying and at least we're making a difference. What I couldn't stand is if they said, he's very nice. Nice, me, boys, he's nice, by the way. Nice. Scripture's not nice. Scripture invites you to an adventure, to, to, to something that's beyond what you can grasp or imagine right now. It's not safe and it's not nice. It's going to cost you. 
Jesus says you're going to die to yourself, pick up the cross, and come and follow me. It's going to cost you absolutely everything to go and follow. You're going to serve other people. You're going to clear up sick. You're going to go to court and sit in waiting rooms, watching kids that have wasted their lives away and ended up in prison, and you're going to be asked to love you're going to be asked to minister to both those who carry knives and those who have been stabbed. You're going to be asked to minister to mums who have lost their sons and their daughters through new violence. You're going to be asked to minister to people who are broken, absolutely broken, because the world we live in is broken. He's not nice at times. But rather be caught trying to make a difference in those situations than sitting trying to pretend that this is all nice, and our church is nice, and we've got it all together, and we don't want to upset you, and we don't want to offend you. We need to be a provocative voice to our societies, to our governments, to our local politicians, to the areas where we live in. What we, we live in a context, we're working in a context, like I said, which is tough, tough, tough. We're working where 50% at least of the kids shouldn't graduate high school. We've got 100 young people on our after-school program. They come to us four nights a week. They've got a social worker attached to them that does a case study on each one, offers them support. They get given a cooked meal every night. They get a mentor. They get access to a computer in a flipping nice building because they deserve a nice building. Everything around it may look like it's decaying, but let's give people the worth that they deserve. Let's build something nice. You know what happens when you build something nice? People don't wrong. People don't come and attack it because they were proud that that is in their community. It was built by their own hands. So we didn't come in from the outside and say, we're going to do everything for people. We said, how can we enable something? How can we serve you? We don't have all the answers. We already have a model where the church from the UK has gone around the world and made huge mistakes. Some of it's great, but some of it's pretty ugly. Let's be honest about that. And let's learn from that. We must have gritty, hard conversations around justice and around race, around privilege. There's a very articulate argument around it in, in South Africa around white privilege and around, and around understanding what that means and what that term even means and trying to identify. And here's the, here's the truth. I don't think people expect you to have any answers. Someone this morning was saying to me, you've talked about privilege. And how, how do I have answers? I said, most of the people in South Africa aren't expecting white middle class people to have answers, but at least want them to admit that there is a conversation to be had. I don't think people will want answers from, I think that's part of the problem, that we come and try to present answers, but I think we've got to be honest that there's a conversation to be had. I can't deny when I go into this context that I'm white, middle class, have an education, and have a, a passport that could take me all around the world, pretty much without visas in most places. Post-Brexit, who knows afterwards? Probably make us pay a bit more, but we'll still get there. Do you think Germany's not going to allow you in? Oh, we should probably have to pay a little bit more. We're privileged enough that we've got the money to go and pay them. I think there are times when we've got to acknowledge the, the, the stuff that's going on around us. And I think there's an opportunity for your generation to want to have this conversation. Hopefully the generation before you wants to. Almost wish you would be there. But I think there's an appetite amongst your generation that says we at least want to acknowledge that this conversation to be had. There's a way that we can articulate these things. There's a way that we can go and serve. There's a way that we can partner on justice. I don't really like the term serving the poor because it becomes us and them. I'm saying I'm rich. The more I've worked with the poor, the more I've realized I'm broken. I am broken. When you confront brokenness, when you come in, I've seen many young people feel like they've got it all together, they're going on a missions trip, they're going to come to Cape Town, they're going to sort all the problems out, they're going to, you know, they're going to do their thing, and actually we serve them. They don't serve us, and that's fine, but let's be honest about it. We serve them. 
as soon as they were confronted with brokenness, the, the, that mirror just hits you and you realize, I'm broken. I am broken. I am broken. I'm very vulnerable at times. I'm broken. Not because of some disastrous accident, but because I'm human. And if you think there are easy answers to brokenness and injustice, they just aren't. Don't try and come up with easy answers. The book of James says that we, we should be slow to speak, we should be quick to listen, and we should be slow to get angry. So tell me what we'd like to do with our generation. We want to get angry really quickly. We want to be quick to speak and fix all the problems. We want to post it on Facebook and be done within the next 10 minutes. Thank you very much. See the like coming in, see the comments coming in. Smashed it in a great tour of Cape Town. Did this kick-ass mission trip. Saw this lady get saved. She's from the gangs. All your friends. You know, really angry about it, you've got to make a difference, donate it in. Next week, really angry about something else. Next week, really angry about something else. Don't take any time to listen to anybody else. Any negative comment, oh, I hate this comment. <laughs> Carry on as we go. Let me brush it off and come up with clever phrases for it, all of that kind of stuff. This has taken us from 2013 now to 2018. We've moved 6,000 miles. We've lived by faith. We don't take a salary from what we do. We live on donations from the church and individuals in the UK. We've done it for nearly four years now, as a family of four. I'm in faith more for my family to be provided for now than I was for that 35 grand on the stage. So I had to ask God to provide for us for four years overseas. But that's not what people see. They remember the big school. That's the excitement. I'm trying to say to you underneath that, you're going to have to be girded with resilience and a deep, deep world. You have to dig a deep, deep worm hole. Because the more you serve amongst the broken, the more you realize you're broken, the more you realize you don't have easy answers, the more you go back to the text, the more you go back to God, the more you wrestle with who God is, the more that will now work in your life, the more authentic your faith will become, the more you'll own your own story. Sure, some of you get excited about my story, and that's fine and good and well. But please ask the question, can, it be, can you have a similar story? Can you write your own story? That was our prayer. God, we're living <coughs> off the faith of other people's stories. We're getting so excited about other people's stories, and we never really live in our own adventure in God. I want to ask you to write your own adventure in God. Take out as an inspiration if you love to, by all means. But live your own. Find it throughout. Don't follow me on Twitter, I'm not saying anything interesting. I think I'm just going to delete my account. It's boring. It's just angry people, isn't it? We were trying a few lines. You know what? When I say Steve at Steve Morris, I'm speaking at uh, at Saint Ireland today, um, in hashtag, you know, Kingdom Changers, like home. I'm actually saying to people, I'm doing all right, guys. God wants to speak something. I, I think I've got to make it. I think they even might like it. And if they retweet, retweet it, then that affirms that they did like it. That's what I'm saying. I'm actually just boasting about what I'm doing today. I've not got time for that anymore. I'm just going to boast about what I'm doing today. I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I'm not interested. We're going to have to live this stuff, not just, not just post it. We're not looking for this big billboard post. It's too messy for that. Last week we were calling riots. The community was closed down. There's police on every entrance and entry. They're shooting rubber bullets in there. The week before that, I was speaking to one of our colleagues that got shot twice in the head. His head stapled together because it's been caught in a gang issue. The beginning of the year, we buried a six-month-old child, one of our colleagues, work colleagues, and it was an open coffin funeral. You're gonna need to dig a deep well. I want to tell you, when I stared at that baby in that, in that coffin, 
I had to dig so deep for hope in the gospel in my own heart to even speak. And, and I don't want you to think, wow, that's nice. Yeah, that's hardcore. It's not hardcore, it's just life. It's messy, it's life. It's, it's gritty, but it's something that's glorious about it at the same time. The fact that we can all stand in these situations and still find hope in the gospel convinces me that the gospel is true and solid and could create a revival in our nations that politicians and leaders would say. Those freaking Christians, the thing I hate about them is they even rejoice at a funeral. They even bury their children and celebrate. They even find hope in the most darkest of situations. They will even try and invest their cash into changing the lives of the vulnerable. They won't care whether they're, they're, they're you know, from their families or other people's families. There's a command in the gospel to go and, and care for strength. To go and care for the alien. What does your local church say about immigration, immigrants, illegal immigrants, refugees? What do we say? I'm not saying I've got an easy answer. I'm saying we need to at least talk about something. At least talk about it. We need to at least have a conversation about it. What do the local churches say about the fact that in probably most of the major towns in the UK, there are groups of people that are smuggling children, that are bringing in sex slaves into our own societies? These are gritty, raw, real issues. And I'm getting very serious and very deep. And I, I, I want to almost share with you that this, this has been an adventure that's been the best part of my life. I don't regret it. It's been tough. It's been tough. But I've dug such a deeper well in God in myself that I now know I really believe what I say I believe. God is so good. God is so good. That this is way better than leading a safe, uh, keep your faith neat and tidy, come to church, two songs, sit down, raise my hands, thank you, listen to the message, tweet about the pastor, catch it again on YouTube. It's way more than that. It's better than that. That feels a disservice. What I want you to do is say, yeah, I want this to be real. I want this to be real and embedded and dangerous. I think that's what there's something in you that will urge for a faith that, 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 that you'd at least be dangerous. Or at least be alive. Or at least have something that kind of kind of reads it. I'm kind of way off my notes now. I think I was meant to be talking about Emperor Julian. I think that the questions you need to ask are. What's your relationship with prayer? What's your relationship with prayer? Before this happened in our lives, we, we began to learn how to pray. I love the fact that disciples come to Jesus and say, See, teach us how to pray. Would you teach us how to pray? And you're part of a movement of churches that's really taking prayer seriously. That's exciting. That's exciting. When we take prayer seriously, our lives are changing. Don't, don't go to prayer because what you can get from God. Go to prayer because you want a relationship. You want to learn to speak with him, you want to learn to hear from him, you want to learn to, 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 to have a relationship with him. I, I, I before this, spent a lot of time in the prayer room, spent a lot of time on my knees trying to ask God. I, I found I was praying more and more in silence. Just rock up and I realized, you really got anything to say, God? I've got no good ideas, I'm empty, and I would listen to worship music and I would sit in silence. But I knew somehow that in the depth of that silence, God was beginning to change my heart. To change my mind, you need to change my mind. We sit and pray for a solid hour and not really say anything for 55 minutes. Just sit still. I don't, when was the last time we had an hour where you didn't look at your phone, where you weren't distracted by something, where you didn't attempt to read something, where you didn't attempt to, to do anything but ask God to be in his presence? Find somewhere quiet. There's not even that many places that quiet. This room is eerily quiet right now, right? It's uncomfortable when you came in. 
he said, uh, we, we hadn't finished building that room because we'd run out of money. This boy came and they said, what do you think she is saying to you? He said, she needs to finish it quick. And I said to him, okay, uh, you have a line with Jesus. So tell me where the money's going to come from and where the partnership's going to come from and how we're going to do this. But we were like, you know, if that's what God is saying, then we need to finish it. So we finished that project. It's called the Youth Cafe. It's a bit like starting a government project with no government partnership and calling it exactly the name that the government called that project. That's a bit cheeky, you know. That's a bit like presumptuous, you know. And then a government official came to open the building and sent an email and said, oh, this youth cafe looks fantastic. And then people on the email go, there isn't a youth cafe there. Yeah. We're on the email, and then the email goes above that, head to the next department. Is there a youth cafe there? Oh, no, there is a youth cafe there. Because until you've got to the head of this government department, in the whole of our area in the Western Cape, that's like the whole of London, like the head of the Department of Social Development in the area says, there isn't a youth cafe in Fraybrook. But if you're saying there is one, then we're going to come and visit it. Now we're in trouble, big time trouble, because we've, you know, we've got no partnership with these people, we don't know what we're doing. Anyway. So they came, they sat in what we were doing, and they said, You're giving us a problem. I said, Why? I said, Well, we think you're going to do this, you've got to train and encourage young people, you're going to build the youth cafe, and it's going to be good. We're like, problem where? And how's that work? They said, Well, here's a problem. If you do that, you're going to make us look bad, because we haven't partnered with you. So you've given us a problem. It's what the emperor was saying is, Christians are going to do it, and they're going to do well, and then we're going to want to look bad. So they were like, why don't we just partner with you then, eh? Why don't we just support you and start giving you some money towards this project? So now we have partnership with the government. The project's been so successful over the last few years in, in getting money to urge our people to work. But we've been asked to multiply the model, take it to different communities. We've been asked to advise different youth cafes all over the area in the Western Cape, which is the far region. Because the church has got something to say. The church, when it goes in its name, when it listens to the prophetic, when it serves the poor, when it comes alongside these issues of justice, Church has actually got answers that governments, uh, that people, that people in our society are looking for. And the final thing I'll close with, because I'm an hour and I was up, is this that we don't not take the gospel seriously. Some people will say to you when you get involved in this kind of work, oh, well, these guys are all about social justice, but you know, what is the evangelism? Like, we've had people say to us, all the stories that you've heard, everything that you've heard me say, I hope you'll be like, wow, that's exciting there. And then people say, five minutes later, you're all about a gospel. I quietly want to head by the wall, you know, because I'm like, this is the gospel. I don't know how we've confused you, but this, I think, is the gospel. But I think what they're trying to ask me is, are young people saying a four-line prayer that means they become Christians, right? They're asking me, is anybody responding to this? Are people being saved? Are people coming? I want to know, we absolutely have that conviction of our hearts, that people, when they see the gospel, people, when they encounter unconditional love, find it a compelling invitation to respond to Jesus. They find it a compelling reason to ask you why you are doing what you are doing. And we should never be scared to give evidence and reason for the hope that we have in Christ. We're not embarrassed of the gospel. We're not hiding why do we believe we are. We're just trying to make sense of it Monday through Saturday. And I believe people should, if it's helpful, say a four-line prayer that, that brings them to faith. I really believe that. But a four-line prayer is not actually in the scriptures. What's in the scriptures is repent and be baptized and follow Jesus. Turn from your old way of living, put it to death and, and let it and come to life. And praise God, we are seeing young people and other people leave games, be baptized, and come into the kingdom of God through this kind of work. So please know when you leave here, I'm not some radical justice junkie who doesn't love the church, who doesn't believe the gospel. I believe that what we're talking about here is the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, you know, that the kingdom will be sown in our communities. And 
This is what I believe that the kingdom of God looks like in my context. The challenge I leave you with is this is, what does the kingdom of God look like in yours? What does the gospel look like? What good news, the gospel, the good news, what good news has your church got for your community? What good news has your life got for those around you? Other than that, thanks for listening. I'm very ordinary, very ordinary. So are you. I really believe that if you take this book seriously, you can live a life of an exciting adventure for God, and I really pray you do. And I would wish that you find God and write an amazing story for what He's got for you, what He's got for your communities, and what He's got for the people that you love. So, and I appreciate you giving out an hour of your time to wrestle with my world and what we do. So, thank you. Bless you. Have a great day. If you want to go, you don't. Know, it's time's up. If you want to ask me a question, you can ask me a question. I'm here, I'm free to chat. Um, I'm going to have a break after. Oh, yeah. I think I just pressed stop. I should be.